Hello, and welcome to the Soundweavers podcast. Soundweavers explores the trials and tribulations of small ensemble musicianship through conversations with leading performers and composers. Today's episode features Nicholas Finch, Artistic Director of Derby City Music Festival and Principal Cellist of the Louisville Orchestra. We hope you enjoy. Lovely and wonderful gentlefolk, welcome back to the Sam Weavers podcast. As always, I am your host, Dr. Rosanna Moore, and today I'm super excited because we are talking to the host of a chamber music festival, and I'm also really lucky because it's a really, really dear old friend of mine. So, who are we talking to today? We're talking to the wonderfully talented Nicholas Finch, who is the artistic director of the Derby City Chamber Music Festival in Louisville, Kentucky. And as well as that, he is the principal cellist of the Louisville Orchestra and many other things aside. So this festival is going to be launching its second year. Its first year was in 2022 and brought in all sorts of fabulous musicians from around Louisville and around the country to perform in this brilliant festival. So without further ado, hi Nick, thank you for joining us today. Hello Rosie, how's it going? So lovely to hear your voice. So let's start from the beginning. What is this? Who are you? Where do you come from? Tell us your story. Uh, Well, uh, the universe was created billions of years ago and no, I'm just kidding. Yeah, so who am I? Uh, I'm the principal cellist of the Louisville Orchestra. I grew up in Boston. I've lived in Michigan and New York, and and then I've lived in Louisville the longest in my adult life. And, you know, the festival started last year. I was very lucky. You know, I've gotten to know a lot of the supporters of music in my community, and it just so happens um, there was a couple and their dream was always to run a chamber music festival. And we had this conversation. It was before vaccination. We were sitting on their porch in the cold, six feet apart. And she mentioned this. And about a month later, I finally got the courage to write an email to say, you know, I think there's something we could do about this. So that's how all that started. It was really that simple. And then uh, you organize things, you know that managing details is so easy and uh, everything works itself out with no hard work oh, whatsoever. Yeah, of course, that's everything is super simple. This is how the universe right. works. Uh-huh. Right. So, you know, that was definitely a learning experience, but uh, it wasn't a disaster and it's happening again. So 
All right. That's good. So I, you've mentioned that someone wanted to run a chamber festival who you contacted, but why did you want to run a chamber festival in addition to your job as an orchestral musician? Well, I mean, why do any of us like music? Chamber music is the pinnacle of the art form. And uh, what I discovered is I had been friends for years with people that play all over the country. And, and I'm not exaggerating when I say this, many of them at the very highest levels of the profession. And it looks like I didn't do such a terrible job that if I could pay them, they would come and perform. So um, why a chamber music festival? Well, it's interesting. It also happens to match the needs of my particular community. And I think this is a big thing for anyone that's interested in starting something like this is you have to sort of know what your patrons want and what your community needs. I mean, as it turns out in my particular community, there was a huge swath of repertoire that just wasn't being performed, uh, wasn't being presented to the general public at the scale that we have presented it. You know, we have the orchestra, which does brilliant work, our music directors doing amazing work. And we have the Chamber Music Society of Louisville, which will bring in the Dover Quartet. It will bring in, you know, Imani Wins. Uh, it will bring in Eighth Blackbird, you know, groups from, uh, outside that come with a preset program that perform their program, which is great and amazing. And it's wonderful to have them here, but there really was very little cross pollination and there's all kinds of repertoire that just doesn't get performed. You know, you know, the, the Dover quartet comes to town. You're not going to hear them do souvenir to Florence for string mm -hmm. sextet. Um, there's all kinds of other mixed ensembles. And some of it is the greatest music written by the greatest composers. Now there are other communities that have this regularly, but we just happen to find a niche. And so, the audience response was just really overwhelming. Now, there may be other communities where, you know, the standard repertoire is saturated and their needs would be different, but we just happened to find the patrons that were really interested in supporting it and the audience that was craving this music. That's awesome. And you've kind of answered my next, next question of why in Louisville? So obviously you had a need for it, but uh, was it also that you wanted to base it in your home base rather than somewhere like New York or elsewhere? Well, I mean, again, New York, I mean, I lived in New York for many years. I performed in New York, but, but, you know, New York, people might find this shocking. There's a little bit of chamber music in New York city, just a little bit. What a shock. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And some of the people who perform it even more shocking are good. So, you know, the question is, does New York City have the need and does their community demand more of this? I mean, maybe, but is the opportunity there for someone like me? Frankly, no. You know, the Chamber Music Society of Lincoln Center is doing a pretty good job. So, yeah, for anyone wanting to start something, I mean, you know, you have to find a place that's underserved. And, you know, it just so happens that where I live, there was a certain swath of the repertoire that just wasn't being performed. You know, I have thought about trying to do this in other places, but obviously, I mean, it's the same thing with when you look at these entrepreneurs that are just so unbelievably successful. Why was Steve Jobs successful? He was doing something that hadn't been invented yet. You know, why was Jeff Bezos successful? Uh, it's because, you know, just no one had been doing anything at that scale before. If Jeff Bezos had tried to go into a well-established business, like if he decided his real passion was to go into the car industry, right? Which has these institutions that are very old that are serving people's interests very well. I mean, he would still be a pretty successful person. Would he be Jeff Bezos? Probably not. You know, it's yeah. all about going into places and niches that there are needs that are not being served. Um, so, you know, why didn't I start it in New York City? I mean, I just, 
I have a feeling that a lot of their needs are being met very, very well. And yeah, I mean, maybe I would do okay, but I, I just don't think there's as much of a need for me to do this as much as just to be a guest performer there when people want me to perform there. this alone or do you have a fleet of admin to help you with this first year was pretty much me i had some assistance from my uh patrons they were able to connect me with someone to manage some logistics i had some people to manage ticketing i had some people to manage correspondence but mostly it was all me and whenever you start anything the first couple of years it's mostly all you um you know we're very lucky now we're in the process of forming a 501c3 organization i have a board 501c3 should be legally established sometime in the early spring. So uh, as this expands, we are getting more people to help us. We're incredibly lucky. We have someone signing onto the board who works in development for one of our big museums here. Um, she ran a small orchestra in Illinois. So, you know, I'm, I'm extraordinarily lucky to start having more and more help as time goes on. And yes, in my limited experience, one of the most important things you can do is learn to delegate where you can, because one person can't do it all. No. And um, the sooner one can learn how to delegate well, the better. There are certain things that have to be done by me, at least for now, um, just because, you know, things like, you know, will the left hand know what the right hand is doing? So, you know, I'm coming up with a program. There are people I want to invite. If one person's inviting people and one's doing programming, uh, what happens if, if we don't have enough personnel or we have too mm -hmm. many personnel? or we've double booked personnel and there's no way they can be rehearsing in these two things at the same time. Figuring out those logistics is, is difficult. For now, that's still on me. It's a festival with three concerts, but it, it really is like running an orchestra on a smaller scale. I mean, okay. almost all the concerns are the same. Budget, programming, length of concerts, difficulty of the music. But yes, as time goes on, I am happy to delegate more and more to talented people that can help out. That makes sense, that's good. So let's talk about the actual music rather than the logistics. How do you pick the guests who you want to bring to the festival? Uh, it's this very arcane, complex process. Um, the scientific term is people that I like. Okay, that's um, right. So you're bringing me in to do the Ravel this year, yes. Well, unfortunately, there's no, there's no repertoire with harp thus far. <laughs> but, but yes, you are on the shortlist should that ever happen. Oh, and that, no, and that, no, but that's, you know, that's a difficult thing. That's a very difficult thing. And... Um, you know, it's interesting, I think for young people that are starting out, um, there's often this sense, you know, why aren't you being hired by certain people? And you may even know these people and like these people and these people like you. There just may be, there may be no opportunity for them to hire you even if they want to. I really didn't appreciate how powerful this was uh, until I was on this side of things. I mean, because of course, there's so many people I want to invite and I can't invite them all. There's so many people from my community that I want to feature and the concerts can't be three hours long. 
Um, no, no, they really can't. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's it's a ve- it's actually a very difficult choice, and it's and it's it's hard to involve all the people you want to involve when the fact is there are just limits on money and time and artistic choices you have to make. That's really something I didn't appreciate, and and it makes sense to me now. You know, when I was younger and starting out, oh, why won't this person hire me? Why won't this person hire me? Because they have needs of their own, their political considerations of their own. And many of them may have liked to invite me, but there just wasn't an opportunity to. And it had nothing to do with who I am. So it's one of these difficult things, you know, especially when people, they apply for things and they get rejected and they apply for things and get rejected. And I hope they all get to spend some time on the other side of the curtain um, even with people that they respect and they often discover there's just, there's just no room to invite and collaborate with people that you would love to invite and collaborate with. Um, so, you know, to younger people, I would just say, don't take it personally. And, and the other big thing is how can you make yourself more valuable to others? I mean, I think that's the big lesson to be drawn. You know, there's that classic book, uh, how to win friends and influence people. Yeah. And there's a, there's a, there's a piece of advice in the book. That's really good. If you want to make things happen, Stop thinking about what you want. Start thinking about what other people want and need. I, I think that's golden advice. I mean, that's the only reason any of this has gotten off the ground. You know, if I had decided, hey, I want to do a, oh, I don't know. Oh, I want to do a Schoenberg festival. I want to do nothing but post-war serialism. Well, I mean, how? how Good luck. My yeah, hand I mean, goes how, up to you. God bless. Yeah, now, yeah, if I worked in an academic department, it'd be different. Yeah, but, yeah. Uh, but in terms of a music festival that serves the general public, how excited would people get? And that is, you know, I have to say that is another thing I've encountered. I thought early on in my career, I was going to be a new music specialist. I, I love doing new music, but when you look at what causes the reactions in people's faces to want to attend concerts and support things enthusiastically beyond the price of a ticket, there's something about this repertoire that across the century still moves and inspires people. And it's really, it's really we knew that, like we all know that, but to yeah. see it in real time uh, is really astonishing and speaks to the power of this music. No, absolutely. I actually want to backtrack a little bit on what you've said to sort of younger people entering the profession. And I don't know if it was the same when you were in school, but I think when I was studying, that's not always something that is made clear by your professors. It's just sort of do all the practice and you will get all the things, but that's not always the way these things work. You do have to, you have to curate relationships and friendships and work with colleagues for years and years, and eventually you get invited to things. But do you think that's something that perhaps our professors in school could actually be doing a better job of to prepare us more for this, frankly, really difficult job of being a musician? You know, I mean, but some people, that's how it worked out for them. And great. I mean, hey, if it works out for you, that's fantastic. But that is the exception, not the rule. <laughs> right. No, I mean, I mean, I heard a great story about, uh, I won't use names, but there was a string player in a very famous string quartet. And this person wasn't even necessarily trying to become a professional string quartet player. This person was trying to be a composer. And one night on the Upper West Side, someone said, oh, we're reading some chamber music and we're missing a person. Do you think you want to come and fill in? And they said, sure. That is how this person joined one of the most famous chamber music ensembles of the 20th century. Huh. Yeah. I mean, I mean, listen, serendipity happens to some people. I think for most people, they've got a plan and they've got to build a little bit. And, you know, we've all had things like this. I mean, we have some aspects of our career where we just practiced and applied and it worked out. You know, I managed to get a job and getting a job is really hard. But like I said before, part of the problem, 
I don't want to say it's a problem with our profession, right? But we have these storied institutions and we forget that, that someone created that, you know, when people think like, oh, I want to get a job uh, as a title chair in an orchestra. Well, why does that job exist? Who's coming up with the money every year to make sure that person is employed? And if you run your own venture, you essentially do the job of that person yourself. There's, you know, hopefully you have a team of people on your development uh, staff. Uh, when you run your own venture, you are the development staff. And there is something healthy, I think, for everyone to have to do that to a certain extent and just realize where your food and rent really come from. And that comes from fostering these relationships with uh, patrons and individuals and audiences. But, you know, patrons especially, because without patrons that are willing to support at a rate above the standard price of a ticket, mm -hmm. You don't have anything. You don't have a hall. You don't have musicians. You don't have an audience. You know, it's interesting. There's lots of talk now in the profession about so-called outreach, which is really important. And a lot of the outreach is focused on underserved communities, underprivileged communities, which is great. I mean, it's fantastic. And, and we should do that work. It's people are sort of mildly embarrassed to talk about outreach to patrons. And I understand why, right? It's, it's certainly more noble and soul fulfilling to go to an undeserved community and bring something to them. But if you don't have the patron support, you can't even do that work. Yeah. And so I, I do feel like, you know, and, and entrepreneurship as a skill certainly wasn't taught as much when I was in school a billion years ago when the earth was cooling. Um, <laughs> it's certainly taught more now, but I feel like a lot of that's lost is patron outreach. Mm -hmm. I feel like a lot of the thing that is lost and it's and whether or not you're building an organization or you know you're have an ensemble that you want to tour and perform for people that also is fostering relationships with people that run those societies chamber music societies concert series and yeah i, I mean good musicians sort of figure this out is that a skill that can be taught in school i mean they can certainly talk about it a certain amount of it you only learn when you get into the field yeah um and, and i don't say this as some kind of an expert i mean i certainly could do far better than i'm doing now but it's, it's one of these skills that, yes, you learn that so much of it about, yes, the quality of playing is unbelievably important. The quality of the musicianship is unbelievably important. But make or break yourself between yourself and a thousand other talented people. What makes the difference? It's that relationship. I know, I know someone who was a major competition winner, but the thing that they were so good at is following up with uh, the people that invited them. And remembering, oh, how is your eighth grade grandson doing that plays the viola in their middle school orchestra? Those things are so important. You know, I think in schools that's not talked about openly. I think some people see it as unseemly, and I kind of understand why, but there's a way to do it authentically that serves the needs of whatever community it is you're hoping to engage. And again, I think that yeah. has to be the starting point is what do they want? We know what you want, right? You want to be paid to perform whatever it is that you're performing. But Absolutely. Yeah. How does that match up with the people that are actually going to be hiring you to come and, and perform? And yes, I do think some of that is lost when you're in school.
let's talk about repertoire. We've spoken about how you choose the guests who you want to bring in, but how do you decide on your rep? I, I know you've, um, uh, to kind of combine the two, you've also brought in uh, the musical director of the Louisville Orchestra, Teddy Abrams, on his original uh, instrument of the clarinet. So I, what comes first, the people or the repertoire? It's It's some initial combination of both, and then you have to fill in the details later. You may have broad themes. There may be a work that you really want to do. You know, in the case of uh, Teddy, and it's interesting because inviting someone like him and you're saying, oh, you're inviting him to play. And the, yes, the question is, which instrument? But, you know, Teddy said to me, he said, you know, I mean, he, he, he has such an incredible career as a conductor, but he, he didn't know if he would get to play some of this repertoire again, let alone with people at this level. So, um, you know, it's, again, it's matching uh, the needs of the people you're engaging with the needs of the festival. And so what is the clarinet repertoire? Well, it starts with, with Brahms. And so last year we had him do selections from the Brahms clarinet trio. And he just said, I loved it and I'd like to do more. So now on a concert, I mean, maybe I'm, maybe I'm giving away the store a little bit, but you know, he just said, oh yeah, I just really want to play the Brahms clarinet trio. And I just said, okay. I mean, audiences love that piece. Musicians love that piece. So if you can start with that and then build around it, what makes sense to build around it? We, in the lockdown, I did a, one of those Brady Bunch style videos. We did this piece for eight cellos and soprano. And the soprano we did it with said they would love to do it live. And so, well, what if we make this an all cello concert? That's just one idea. So the point is, is that you can start with a seed of something with certain personnel and certain repertoire. If you decide you want to invite a certain person. So last year, our featured person was the pianist Joyce Yang. Uh, Joyce Yang won the Van Cliburn, won second prize in the Van Cliburn International Piano Competition in 2005. You know, so I was having conversations with her manager and she said, here's the repertoire that she'll have this season. So, you know, some artists, there are limits on that. Mm -hmm. But if you can find repertoire that makes sense, it makes a good concert. You build around that. You know, there's one concert this year. I would like to do a large ensemble piece, uh, the uh, Strauss Metamorphosis for 23 Strings. Nice. So, yeah. So it turns out Strauss also wrote this beautiful sextet from his opera that's not done very often called Capriccio. Could we make that an Ulrich Art Strauss concert? Possibly. Is that too much for the audience? Maybe. Could we do a concert of all German expressionism? I thought about also programming Schoenberg's for Claire to not. But at that point, is that just too much for the audience? These are the kind of, and also what's, what are the personnel going to be? How many people can I get there at one time? What's the cost of that going to be? And so you, you have to weigh all these trade-offs. It's a little bit of a Rubik's cube. And then again, okay, how many rehearsals is this going to require? How many days to rehearse do we have? Is anyone going to be overwhelmed playing three or four services a day? Where are they staying here? Will they have transportation from where they're going to make sure they can make the two or three rehearsals that they're going to be doing? Again, it's this Rubik's Cube. Um, you know, and I'm new at this. Uh, there probably are people that maybe have a more organized system among other people, but these mistakes happen. I mean, we've all been at festivals where suddenly you're double booked, right? Yep. Because, because the, 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 the music director of the festival is weighing a million other things to make sure that the repertoire gets played. You know, that's one thing you have to look, look out for. Um, and it's amazing how much those little details matter. Uh, I remember one of my teachers had a good analogy. You know, he talked about great architecture. You know, you see these beautiful buildings. Great architecture has way more to do with plumbing and electricity than it does with the Gothic sculptures. You know, it's like, do you get your fundamentals right? Do you get the basic, easy, seemingly stupid, but not stupid, really important stuff first? And that all plays a role into selecting repertoire. 
And again, what does the audience want? In, in this community, um, our musical organizations are doing such innovative work. The, the orchestra is really consumed with doing lots of new things, new this, new that, new that. And so it just so happens that there was a hunger for the standard repertoire. Now, in another community, they're just churning out the standard repertoire all day. They would love a new music concert. Those are also things you have to test the waters and not just with audiences, but with patrons, especially with patrons. Because again, without patrons, there is no community served or underserved that you can serve. And, and, and I feel like we should be more honest about that. In my ideal world, the service to underserved communities is a public service we would do for free. But, but, but this idea that that's going to be enough without, without um, making sure you're keeping a good relationship with your patron base, I feel like is, is misguided, even if, it's, even if it's like a noble and virtuous tack to take. I think that's that's a great way of looking at it. And again, it's very honest to talk about it like that because it's, I mean, in the last couple of years in general, sort of looking at outreach and community engagement has been so important. And it is, it's a hugely important thing. It's something I love doing, but you do have to serve both sides of the coin. Otherwise you don't get to go into these communities. And it's, it is really important that we know that it's the you have to do both. Well, and the patrons want to see you doing that work. I mean, yeah. that's the that's that's the thing, right? It it's, makes it's, them feel happy that they feel like they're uh, well, not just not them. just feel happy. They want to make sure that they want to make sure that that work their work is making an impact beyond yeah. just their own enjoyment. But if you don't have that relationship first, and and again, what is it about this music that first inspired that patron to want to support it in the way that they do? Because they could do any number of things with their money. This is a little bit of a challenge, actually. Uh, you know, I know that uh, in a lot of big tech communities, um, lots of people in big tech are skeptical about supporting classical music. And the arguments yeah. make sense. I mean, you know, someone like Bill Gates has said, well, yeah, you could give money to the symphony or you can buy thousands of malaria nets to save children in Africa from dying from malaria. I mean, that's a powerful argument, right? Yeah. That's and, and, and I, I, I don't fault Bill Gates for making that argument, but we have to we have to make our case to the people that can keep our lights on and make all this other work possible. So going back to kind of funding things and uh, 501c3 nonprofit status, can you talk us through the process? Because this is actually awesome that you're filing for this only uh, after only existing for a year as, as someone in a bunch of chamber groups. I'm actually looking at the process at the moment um, with some of my groups and we're looking at fiscal sponsorship first so that we can build up some more things to be more successful when we apply for a 501c3. So can you just talk about the process of why you're doing this and also how do you do it? Well, I mean, there are lots of ways to do it. Um, we're and aside very lucky. from hiring a lawyer, I am going to make that <laughs> Right. Well, and, and we're very lucky because we're working with a lawyer who's a deep music lover and supporter. I mean, we really, again, a large part of this is luck. Anyone who pretends it's not luck is lying to you. You know, there are lots of ways. There are organizations that will do this for you. There was an organization I was pointed to. You know, it doesn't cost nothing. But, you know, 501c3s, it, it is good to get some legal help just because, you know, the IRS wants to make sure that if you're going to take people's money tax-free, they have a pretty good idea that you're going to do what you said you're going to do with it. You know, there are famous cases, fraud cases through 501c3s, you know, and, and, and of course, the legalese is something that, that most musicians are not experts in. So, yes, fiscal sponsorship looks good in terms of working with another organization that has that vehicle. There's lots of advice out there for people doing this. But, you know, and, and again, it's not the kind of thing you want to do unless you're pretty sure there's some level of support behind you. 
but but of course, I mean, then it just becomes, you know, it just becomes easier. People are much more comfortable donating to something that has the IRS stamp of approval. There are times when when you're just starting out and patrons go, well, who do I make this check out to exactly? So um, and just to organize things and to make yourself it's like it's like getting a website. It's very interesting. Years ago, when I still lived in New York, there was a conductor that was talking about organizing an orchestra to tour China. And he said that he knew some people that could make that happen. And the first question is, well, what's the name of the ensemble and where's your website? And we didn't have either. So it's, you know, you have to give birth to, I mean, it's interesting. What is a 501c3? Uh, it's interesting because it's an entity that can take funds. It can own property. It can employ people. But what is it? It's a legal fiction. It's a story we tell ourselves. You know, what, what, is, what is a festival really? It's people. And yet there is this entity. And by the way, that can live on beyond when the person who founded it is deceased. And so it's just interesting. It's sort of like when you put ink to paper, it's sort of like you're giving birth to the idea in a new way, which may seem silly, but, but, it, but it is different somehow when this thing takes on a life of its own. So I, I'm sorry if that was not nearly as practical as you were <laughs> no, hoping no, for. No, no, that's fine. <laughs> I mean, I mean, the answer is a chatty podcast. It's fine. I'm just I'm enjoying listening to your dulcet tones. So the listeners hear me enough. It's fine. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I mean, the the answer is if you can afford legal help, get it. Um, And 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 also finding people that will agree to serve on your board that are as invested in this as you are. So, again, we were very lucky because we found people that 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 really support this idea and want to be board members. Not that they have to do a ton at first, but even just knowing even just knowing that there are people behind you to support you, it makes such a huge difference. So how do you pick your board members? So I know for places like orchestras, uh, if you want to serve on a board, you normally either have to give a certain amount of money per year or you have to offer services. So that's why there's a bunch of lawyers or um tax people who serve on boards because they can help uh help the musicians with doing that but how for a smaller venture like a chamber music festival is it a similar idea with picking your board members or how does it work well at first it's really just who's enthusiastic and who wants to be involved who cares uh, that's good okay right right and i mean you know we are not an or- we're not yet an organization with a multi-million dollar budget so it's you know you don't necessarily need the same things that the rochester philharmonic needs but it's great, you know, again, it's, it's one of these things. And I mean, I think if the shoe was on the other foot, you know, if we were uh, professionals in more lucrative professions that loved this art form, we would want to know how to give back. And finding those people who can be invested, you know, and, and for example, there's someone who's one of our biggest supporters who serves on lots of other boards. And, and initially we thought about asking him and he said, he's like, I will absolutely support you, but honestly, I can't give the level of investment that I would like um, because he has other things that he's interested in. So. Initially, it's just finding people with the uh, curiosity and the enthusiasm Mm -hmm. uh, are are the most important things. Do you need uh, the most brilliant accountant on your board when you start? Probably not, because again, you're you're not dealing with assets in the millions of dollars. But that that level of enthusiasm and love for the art form, I mean, nothing gets off the ground without that, right? If that's there and the big ideas are there, the details will be filled in later. This is going to sound like a very cheesy analogy, but uh, years ago, I did a deep dive on in the acting pedagogy. I had a teacher that told me, he said, you know, you really should read Stanislavski. It's really important for musicians to read it. And it you do know out- this is my research. This is what I did my doctoral research on as musicians oh, using I- Stanislavski and Brecht. Oh, I didn't know that. Did you not know that? Oh, okay. Yeah. You're, I'm very happy. Please tell me about Did you? Did Stanislavski. you encounter someone named Stella Adler? 
No, I did not. Who is Stella Rappler? Just Google her when we're done. She was one of the most famous acting teachers in North America, and she was disciple Stanislavski. She's my great great aunt. Someone in the fam, someone in the family made it. Thank goodness. But it's interesting, like that. You know, there's in the acting pedagogy. There's this talk of right the objective and the super objective. Yep. And it is one of these things where you know, right? If 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 an actor's in a scene and the house is on fire, if they think about how they're going to wipe their brow. Or how they're going to cock their eye. It looks terrible. It's completely inauthentic. When they know what the character's objectives and super objectives are, those details fill themselves in in a totally authentic way. And I think... It's the difference between actually literally becoming the character and just presenting the character, which... Right. And so I I really do feel like a lot of these organizations, and same with the concert, you have to know what your objectives and super objectives are. And a lot of the details... I don't want to... It's very dangerous to say they'll fill themselves in because obviously it takes work to fill them in. But 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 that's in a way that's sort of the easier part. Mm-hmm. You know, once you once you know what the big idea is, it's just a matter of filling in the rest. the concerts themselves for your first year and I assume you're going to do this into your second year you have a pay what you can model for reserving seating Uh, can you talk about your reasoning for choosing this model of payment and what you think the consequences have been of doing that you know for us it's been hugely successful because I mean first of all in your first years you want to make sure people are in the seats but secondly you want to make sure that people will value what it is you're doing. And this this model sort of fulfills both things. Um, you know, there is sort of economic research that people treat things as less valuable when they, when they don't have to invest anything in it. Mm-hmm. And what's amazing about a donation model is the people who are inspired to give more often will give more. Whereas if it's just 30 bucks ticket, period, everyone pays 30 bucks. Sometimes the people that otherwise would be inspired, it just doesn't occur to them. I think I think it's a great model. You know, we're we're still playing with what it will be for next year. But I know, for example, the Grant Park Festival does this, where there's sort of two tiers. There is, you know, if you want the front seat, you have to make a donation, but you can still sit in the back and hear the concert. And you know, again, you also want it to be a thing where there isn't really a barrier for anyone who really can't afford to go. You really want everybody to be able to go, uh, if by whatever means it is that they can do that. There are some podcasters who adopt this model, actually. Mm. One podcast I listen to, it's five bucks a month. But they say, if that's really a barrier, just send us an email. We'll give you a free account. That's amazing. I love that. But it's it's amazing how many people pay. Mm -hmm. 
it's actually really incredible how many people are willing to give generously. And we also did something very interesting the first year um, because the war in Ukraine was still relatively new. We did one concert as a benefit partially for Ukraine. And so 50% of all donations would go to a charity to help Ukrainian refugees. It was really incredible how successful that was. We raised about, we raised several thousand dollars and we made several thousand dollars. And, you know, this was, I didn't know anybody was going to show up to these, you know, I did I had no idea that anybody was going to come to the concerts. Um, but, but most people still are willing to pay for something that they see gives them tremendous value. And, and I think the fact that the suggestion is even there makes people value it more without making it a barrier to something they really can't afford. I think that's great. And I think it's a really good model to have because again like it, it means that you are going to have more people walking through your door and some of them might never go to a classical music concert ever get ever again and some of them might find something they really enjoy so well right and 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 they can decide how at what level they want to financially support it mm-hmm. there is a little bit of a myth i mean there is this sort of view in the industry that oh the reason we need don't have bigger audiences is because we're too expensive but then you look at a I don't know, a Metallica concert or Beyonce concert. And people are willing to spend- A Taylor hun- Swift concert. A Taylor That's Swift concert. Timely. <laughs> right. So I actually don't believe the problem is that we're too expensive because there's any number of things ordinary people will spend all kinds of money on. But uh, I, think, I think the art form does scare people sometimes initially. Mm-hmm. So, you know, again, just give them the option. When, when you do your job and you create something that really touches people and they value it, they're often more than happy to- give if if just given the option not the obligation to do so all right i am actually going to jump back to more logistic uh, related things you mentioned rehearsals and where people stay and logistics like that so um with regards to booking rehearsal venues do you use the same venues as your concert venues or do you rehearse in someone's living room do you have homestays for your guests who come out of town or do you put them up in hotels like i know this may change over the next few years as this continues to grow but as part of the reason why we're talking to you is a it's a brilliant festival and you're lovely but also this is sort of it's interesting to talk to someone who's actually starting something and it's still very much in the genesis of it so can you talk about some of those logistics? That was a very that was a very long winded question. I'm really sorry. <laughs> I mean, the answer is yes. Yes. I mean, okay. I mean, honestly, I mean, all of the above. Uh, again, it depends what you're doing. I mean, we perform in a church. They do church things during the week. Yeah. You know, would it be great to rehearse there all the time? Sure. Is that hour available? You know, where is the alternative space? Is there a living room that everyone can get to at a certain time that fits the bill? We're doing a larger ensemble. Is there a room that is big enough to support us all? I mean, again, this is all part of the Rubik's Cube. We've been very, very lucky to find some amazing um, homestays donated by generous people. You know, we didn't know for certain that we would have that. Yeah, especially just after COVID. That's really awesome. Or right. uh, just after, still during COVID, let's be right. honest. And then there was a case of, you know, we have a, a, a famous pianist coming in. Does this person have a space that's adequate with a piano? Mm-hmm. What pianos will this person have access to? Does does the venue that you're doing the concert at have a piano that's sufficient? Do you have a technician that's sufficient? These are all things you have to think about. There was one venue my sponsors were really interested in having us play in, but the altar goes right up to the first pew. And if you put a piano there, there's no room for anybody else. And yeah. it really was a brilliant venue, but you know that's why we couldn't pick it. Yeah, um, I have fantasies of 
doing works for two pianos. For whatever reason, I love the Rachmaninoff suite for two pianos. I know our audiences would go crazy. Is there a place with two pianos? If we don't have two pianos, how do we get a second piano in there? How much of that is going to cost? A lot. How much? <laughs> how much? How much of the budget am I willing to sacrifice because I care that much about that? I know this is kind of going back to what we talked about before, but this is the Rubik's cube that you have to um, do. And of course, what's interesting is like when it's a major orchestra, they have whole staffs of people to take care of this. And uh, it really is a thankless job because when everything goes smooth, uh, everyone thinks that the universe just took care of things yourself. And in reality, you put in thousands of hours making sure that those things were taken care of. And so you know, for anyone who works in an orchestra, thank your good administrators, because the fact that those things work without a hitch, you know, people only notice when something goes wrong. And the odds of something going wrong when you're dealing with all these things, is huge. And so it's people- It's a lot of moving parts, yeah. A lot of moving parts. When you said the logistics, it's just a ton of moving parts and it's all interconnected. You know, in some ways it's better if it's just me doing it, because again, the left brain and the right brain are talking to each other. Uh, lots of conductors. We hope anyway. Right. When it's a conductor and a staff, you know, the conductors have these amazing big ideas. And then it's the job of the staff to kind of say, well, hold on a second now. What would happen if you do this, this, and this? So again, getting the left and the right hands to talk to one another, which is, if you're in an organization that's putting on 30 weeks of concerts, it's totally different than mm -hmm. a, a shorter festival. But even just knowing how many weeks of planning goes into a festival, uh, it's astonishing how much work is going on behind the scenes. You know, oh, Oh, there's a concert this weekend. Of course, concerts just happen. They just materialize out of thin air, right? So. Of course, that's how it works. Yeah. <laughs> so in your first festival, you also streamed all of your concerts so that people around the country and around the world could watch how brilliant all of the concerts are. Is this something that you plan on continuing to do uh, in future editions of the festival? And also, can you talk about some of the technological things that you need to do to make sure it's a good stream? Well, we were just so lucky uh, because the venue we were working with has all this technology to stream their services. That's super handy. And the engineer not is, is actually a member of my orchestra. Ah, and it also really super handy. Super handy. But I mean, that was just another one of the reasons why this venue, we just said yes, um, because it was all there for us. It was all built in. Um, that's one thing to consider when you're looking at venues, if this is something that you want to do. Streaming is something that a lot of people demand now. And it's interesting. It's not just us. I mean, part of the reason why churches have it is because during the pandemic, this became an option that people really wanted. I played a uh, Kol Nidre service for Yom Kippur this year, and I hadn't really played one live since before the pandemic. And, and I have to say the numbers were much less, but the next day people said, oh, I just loved what you did last night. And they weren't there. They were watching at home. This is one thing that lots of people want the option to do now. Um, you know, there are concerns, for example, if this year, if we do a lot of Richard Strauss, a lot of Richard Strauss is under copyright. That was going to be my next question, actually. It was going to be music that's copyrighted. Are you even allowed to stream it? Uh, not for free. Yeah. So it's, you know, there's those concerns. Again, these are, these are, and how much of the budget do you want to spend to make sure, and, and you may believe in something so deeply. Yes, I want that stream. But, uh, you know, that's another consideration. Do you book the super expensive, uh, super famous guest artist versus do you free up the budget to do other things? I mean, that's, mm -hmm. there's no, there's no right or wrong answer to that. There's only trade-offs. The trade, the constraints actually end up forcing you to make more creative choices. Yeah. Streaming is, you know, fortunately the ability to stream is so much easier and the costs of it are so much lower, mm -hmm. but if you can, it's a nice option to have. 
And it's very surprising who ends up watching it. Uh, without going into details, we actually had a somewhat famous person from Hollywood watching. Oh, damn. I was going to say, oh, me? Oh, thanks. That's sorry. <laughs> yeah. But, but I just thought, wow, this person is watching us. That's what? pretty awesome. That's how did you, how did you even know they were it's, watching? Did they comment it's, or? It's a, it's a long story. It's a very long story. Okay. I can't give away all the details. Uh, gosh, Dan. Well, we'll save that to another time. And, and when this is a super famous festival in five years, we'll we'll come back and interview you again. Well, and, this and, podcast and, will be famous and on NPR by then. Well, clearly. and 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 without giving too much away, there is a possibility for collaboration in the future with this person. We are Ooh. we are working out the details. So probably Ooh. not this season. Probably not this season, but maybe in future seasons. We'll see. Hmm. That's exciting. So. You heard it here first, folks. That's always fun. So that brings me to the last formal question of the interview, which is, what do you wish you knew before you started this? Hmm. And what would you do differently? What do I wish I knew before? It's a good question. Um, I mean, I think maybe, maybe what I can say is just one lesson to keep in mind is that if you're lucky enough to be in a situation where you can make this happen, even if you get as much right as you can, you will make mistakes. But more than that, you're not going to make everybody perfectly happy. It's just not possible. Be prepared to have a little bit of a thick skin because at some point, someone is going to disagree with something that you do. And, and that's okay. You know, at some point, you have to be okay with the logistics didn't work out perfectly and it couldn't for X, Y, or Z reasons. And someone won't like it. And you know, it was the trade-off that you just had to make in that moment, and it was unavoidable. And if you can do it differently in the future, of course you will. But there will be moments where this is your possible set of trade-offs, and you have to make a decision, and no, de no decision is going to be perfect. And not everyone's going to be happy with it, and that's okay. And, and to learn to have the thick enough skin to realize that it's okay. And like I said, to know that there are people that you love and admire that you want to include, and, and you can't do it all. You can't, you just can't do it all. Uh, I'm much more uh, sympathetic now when I, in the past, like I said, oh, I really want to play with these people. Ugh, why am I not being invited? I mean, it's just, you know, they had particular needs. They had particular needs and they didn't need me. It's nothing personal. I think that's awesome. And oh, that, so you don't need help this season. It's very sad. Very I don't know sad. yet. I don't, I don't know yet. Right. But it's clearly not a judgment of you. <laughs> Oh, well, that's good. I'm pleased to hear that. So it's not, it's not like we're hiring another harpist. We have no harpist. There was someone that plays an instrument that just wasn't featured. And I heard this person said, should I be offended? I was not invited. And I love this person. Absolutely. This person's a brilliant musician. We just didn't need that instrument. So there are so many, there are so many decisions out there. It's just not personal. It has to do with these silly practical things and we can get in our heads and think that it means that we did something wrong or that we're terrible or that nobody likes us and so much of the world it's just practical minutiae is what makes it go round well welcome to like all musicians just going oh god what did i do wrong <laughs> right right okay so we have come to the actual final question we always end these um uh interviews with a question roulette so i'd like you to pick option a b or c c if you could give advice to you 10 years ago, what would it be? Go to medical school. I'm just kidding. <laughs> I knew you were going to say that. Yeah. I know I still you good, too well with it. <laughs> it's, it's still good advice for most people. Um, 
10 years ago. Let's see, what was I doing 10 years ago? I think John Lennon said, life is what's happening while you're making plans. Mm -hmm. And just be prepared. You know, it's great to have plans, but be prepared as well. Things will pop out of nowhere you didn't expect. Be prepared to ride them and see how far they go. And, and be prepared as well to be open-minded enough to take that ride. Because I think, especially younger people, have a very distinct idea of what their career is supposed to be. And life is a weird thing. You just have no idea what's going to happen. Be open to it. Awesome. All right. And with that, uh, thank you so much to the amazingly wonderful and talented Nicholas Finch for sitting down with chatting about all things to do with the Derby City Music Festival. Uh, if you are in the Louisville area, I believe this is in late May 2023. Yes. May 23rd, 25th and 30th. If you are in the Louisville area at that time, please do go and support in person. But hopefully these shows are also going to be streamed, so you should be able to check it online. And we will see you in a couple of weeks. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Soundweavers podcast. If you enjoyed our show, please subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and most other major podcast platforms. We hope that you'll visit us at www.soundweaverscast.com. Follow us on Facebook and Instagram at SoundweaversCast and on Twitter at SWChambercast, where you'll get episodes as soon as they drop, show notes, and regular updates. This podcast is produced by Nicholas Yelenowskis and engineered by Evan Henry. As always, I'm your host, Rosanna Moore. Our theme music was composed by Evan Henry and recorded by the Soundweavers founders. The music you heard in today's episode was composed by Brahms, Mendelssohn and Shostakovich and performed by the musicians at 2022's Derby City Music Festival in Louisville. On behalf of the Soundweavers cast, see you next episode.